Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the struggle for the 21st century. I'm Misha Oslin, your host, and this is our first podcast of 2023. We're happy that you're all with us again, and particularly I'm happy that you have joined us for an excellent guest, uh, one that I've been looking forward to having for quite some time, and that is Admiral Linda Fagan. Admiral Linda Fagan is the 27th Commandant of the United States Coast Guard. She assumed her duties last June on June 1st. She oversees all global Coast Guard operations and its 58,000 active duty reserve and civilian personnel, as well as 21,000 Coast Guard auxiliary volunteers. Admiral Fagan has served on all seven continents. She has been uh, more than 15 years as a Marine inspector and also served sea duty on the Polar Star, a heavy polar icebreaker. She holds a degree in Marine Science from the U.S. Coast Guard Academy, a Master of Science in Marine Affairs from the University of Washington, uh, and has earned numerous personal and team awards during her 37 years of Coast Guard service. She's the longest serving active duty Marine safety officer, and this is something we're definitely going to have to ask her about. She holds the distinction of being the Coast Guard's first ever gold ancient trident. So, Admiral Linda Fagan, welcome to the Pacific Century. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for that warm introduction. And uh, it is really uh, just a privilege and a pleasure to be here with you and your uh, listeners uh, here on this cold gray uh, day in January in DC, and uh, I am really excited to help uh, tell the story about what the United States Coast Guard is, how we contribute uh, to our national security and prosperity, and then how that role uh, contributes uh, throughout the uh, the Pacific region. And uh, I am really looking forward to, uh, to spending the next hour with you and your listeners. Thank you. Well, thank you. And I think before we get into all of that, the, the proper way to begin is, is to talk about you. Uh, and you mentioned before the show that you're from Boston. Uh, I spent a, a good number of years up in New, New England as well. Um, so how does someone from Boston... Uh, with all the opportunities that that Boston can offer, decide to go to the U.S. Coast Guard Academy and serve the nation in in just a really critical role for the seaboard and beyond. Yeah, thanks. It um, as I came into this position uh, back in June, and uh, you know I've been uh, you know in my 38th year now as a commissioned officer in in service and so you know had had some opportunity to reflect on the journey because uh, you certainly don't wake up one morning and get a phone call uh, you know from the president saying hey I intend to nominate you to be the uh, commandant that's uh, not generally something that comes out of the blue there's a journey in the process that uh, that takes you there and you know for me we my parents moved to the New England area uh, I was, uh, you know, just about to start elementary school, and the deal was they got to buy a boat. And if oh, wow. you do any kind of boating in the New England area, Boston area, you can't not notice the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard is uh, everywhere in New England. It's part of the roots of the service, the life-saving service, the lighthouse establishment. And so we'd spend weekends on the boat, and I'd see the Coast Guard small boats back and forth, Boston light. I didn't know at the time. Uh, the New England area is really sort of the founding geographic area of what's now the modern day uh, Coast Guard. And 
I discover as a you know sophomore in high school that there's this thing called the Coast Guard Academy. And Coast Guard Academy is a military service academy, just like Annapolis West Point Air Force Academy. Uh, we do not require a congressional nomination, but a very competitive uh, STEM-oriented organization to get into. I applied. I was so confident that I would go to the Coast Guard Academy. I only applied to two colleges, the oh, wow. Coast Guard Academy and Purdue. Uh, I, my parents are Boilermakers with a hindsight. They probably should have encouraged me to apply to a few other institutions, but uh, uh, I was accepted and went and really, you know, as an 18 year old, my goal was to uh, complete the academy, be commissioned as an officer and serve. Uh, I did not have a more complicated life plan than that it was just <laughs> to be an officer uh, in, the, uh, in the Coast Guard. And then had the great fortune, my first assignment was the Polar uh, Star. You spoke a little bit about my icebreaking time. And so was able to visit Antarctica, the Arctic, and uh, just do some incredible uh, work on that. The nation's now only heavy icebreaker. And we can certainly, during the course of this, talk some more about investments and where we're going with, uh, with Polar Security Cutter. And from there, I, uh, I, I entered my operational specialty, which is um, what we now call prevention, but um, marine inspections. So inspecting large ships. So think, in, I know many of your viewers, I'm sure have been on cruise ships, uh, inspecting those ships for safety and environmental and security compliance as they come into the US, container ships, tank vessels, uh, that, type of, uh, that type of operation. I spent a number of years uh, doing that. Then you find yourself get more senior, uh, they don't like out in the field to do that anymore. And you're now more in the policy and resourcing work. And uh, about 11 years ago, I was promoted to flag officer. I was serving at the time of the, as the captain of the port of New York, which is just an incredible experience. And uh, I've been a flag officer now for 11 years. And I'm now you know, serving in the, you know, the most senior role that you can uh, as the service chief leading this incredible uh, workforce that is the United States Coast Guard whether, you know, active duty reserve civilian, you mentioned the auxiliary in the opening, 20,000 strong, all volunteer force. We pay them nothing, uh, but the return that we get on that auxiliary force is, uh, is just second to none. And we can certainly, you know, talk about them too at, the, at some point during this. I, uh, I have been just incredibly fortunate with, uh, with my career. Every job I've had was the best job I've ever had at the time. What keeps me in uniform, keeps me coming back is the workforce. And we're gonna talk about some of the great work that they're doing literally around the world. I, you know, I joined the Coast Guard because I saw small boats in New England and I've grown uh, to appreciate and now uh, know with certainty, we aren't just a Coast Guard, we're a global Coast Guard. We're the world's best Coast Guard. Other, Coast, other nations, Coast Guards, other nations, navies, uh, look to us for inspiration and and how we model professionalism and um, you know what it takes to be a professional maritime military law enforcement force. There's just a little bit about myself. I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing where you want to go with the uh, with the conversation, Michael. That is that is wonderful, and uh, I think we'll we'll probably come back. Uh, we're certainly going to talk about the the force. Um, but maybe let's talk a little bit about the the, the Coast Guard itself. It becomes a uh, a a branch uh, of the Armed Forces in 1915, uh, so it's not it's not the the newest. That would be, of course, well, Space Force, and and uh, then uh, before that, the Air Force. Um, so it it really 
comes to life at a moment where the U.S. is uh, beginning to reach out uh, very heavily into the world, including into in a permanent sort of way out into uh, the Indo-Pacific, which which we're going to focus on. Uh, but it it's it's grown uh, over the years to today. There are forty two thousand uh, Coast Guard uh, uniformed members, and then all of the other uh, personnel that that we mentioned. Um, can you tell us a little bit about? Um, the the missions of the, the three major missions of the Coast Guard, uh, and then actually talk a little bit uh, because I think people are probably not as familiar with this, um, the 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 platforms that you use, um, and and I think as you mentioned, uh, in many ways our Coast Guard is larger uh, than most of the navies around the world. Uh, and I know that certainly from being in Japan with the Coast Guard or having been in Japan with the Coast Guard, our Coast Guard has a, a major presence, uh, partnership out there. And really what the Coast Guard brings out into the field is is incredibly impressive. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that, what you do, and then what you do it with. Mm-hmm. Sure. So you uh, started with 1915, which is when uh, the act that establishes the modern uh, Coast Guard comes into being. We trace our founding and roots to 1790. When Alexander Hamilton establishes the Revenue Cutter Service, uh, you know, the young nation needed to generate revenue through taxes and so that a few uh, cutters might prove to be useful sentinels of the law. This is the founding principle that is the Revenue Cutter Service and really uh, the foundational uh, service that that comes forward and I'll talk about some of the others that come into what now form the modern day Coast Guard. So for any uh, Navy uh, historians out there, we do like to point out that while the Navy was established prior to 1790, they had a break in service. They were disestablished for some time. We are the longest continuous serving, seagoing service in the United States, not having experienced that same break in the service that the, uh, that the Navy did. That's really, that's a, that's a wonderful point of history, by the way, that really is. So the Coast Guard being the longest continuously <laughs> sea-serving yeah. arm of the U.S. Armed Forces. That, that's wonderful. Thank you for telling, telling us that. Just, I, I'm glad I know it. Yeah. So, yeah, well, I mean, some of the Navy folks listening may, may not, uh, may not like that, but uh, so 1915, the Revenue Cutter Service, the life-saving service, mm-hmm. the lighthouse establishment, the steamboat and inspection services, and a couple come together. Congress brings us together to form a modern Coast Guard. In, in forming that agency, authorities come forward with us that create a, a military force, a law enforcement agency, a regulatory agency, in a, in a maritime force. And so, you know, you can, it, you can think of us as a maritime constabulary that mm-hmm. is at all times a military force. I carry the same active duty military ID card that any of my fellow service chiefs carry. There's no, uh, no difference in what that means. Although as a military branch, we reside in the Department of Homeland Security and not the Department of Defense. That is often a confusion point. Uh, but shouldn't be because we are at all times a, a military force. So the, the duality of being a law enforcement agency and a military agency with tasking and authorities in a homeland security context, a national security context, is a very powerful blend of authorities that allows the U.S. Coast Guard to operate in ways both, uh, both in our uh, littorals and inner harbors 
and a field as a global Coast Guard uh, in a way that uh, really no other uh, organization is able to do with regard to those uh, to those blends of authorities. And then I, you know, I mentioned regulatory agency. Wait, I just want to touch on it a little more here because we're we're probably unlikely to come back to this, but we are a regulatory agency, and so that means that, and you know, my world of work as a marine inspector and ensuring ships are in compliance with national and international regs. We, as a flag state, the Coast Guard oversees the U.S. flag vessels and our responsibility for ensuring those vessels are in compliance with national and international law. And that frequently means we have to write regulation around, do you have your uh, cybersecurity uh, in order? Are you implementing uh, all of the requirements to ensure that you don't pollute, uh, you know, put oil into our harbors? Those are all, we credential mariners, we document and license ships. All of that is done under our uh, regulatory authority. It's not glamorous work, but it goes on day in, day out and protects, uh, the, protects the nation, ensures our economic prosperity, and you know, ensures that the marine transportation system that we all benefit from, you know, many of your listeners probably have, you know, that in the US have Nike sneakers on. Those sneakers came to the United States in a shipping container into a port and then moved onward into distribution centers. But the Coast Guard has a role in that safety of navigation and shipping, and much of that is in a regular regulatory role. Now you asked about, so how do we do this? I just talked about this broad suite of authorities and capabilities, and we talk about our statutory missions and you know, touched on some, it includes ice breaking you know, on the Great Lakes to keep those waterways open, you know, in New England where I grew up to keep home fuel, home fuel moving, uh, putting aids to navigation out, search and rescue. Uh, that is probably the mission that most people know us for and are most familiar with when you talk about the Coast Guard is our search and rescue mission. It's a bread and butter mission. We do it better than uh, anyone in the world. And you know, if you are a mariner in distress and you are findable, we will find you. And uh, I, I say that with, uh, with great confidence and we take a lot of pride in how we execute uh, that, that mission. Fisheries enforcement, we protect our own uh, living marine resources and fisheries. Talked a little bit about law enforcement, counter narcotics, just a whole host of things. So we do this with a blend of large ships, cutters. This goes back to the revenue cutter. Right? We don't call mm -hmm. them frigates or they are, they're not ships, they're cutters. Uh, so it's a number of different sizes of large cutters. Uh, smaller patrol boats that are, you know, 100 to 154 feet in length, small boats that are, you know, 47 to 35 feet in length. They tend to be in our harbors and much closer to shore. Fixed mm -hmm. wing aircraft, primarily C-130s, not exclusively, and a rotary wing aircraft, and we fly two different types of rotary wing uh, aircraft. But at the heart and soul, the heartbeat of all of this are people. And those pieces of steel, they don't navigate, aviate. They, they're, they're just uh, a tool that is nothing without the workforce. And so you know, you've talked about the size of the force, 42,000 active duty, 7,000 reserve, you know, uh, just a uh, incredible group of talented people that have found themselves drawn to service uh, in the Coast Guard. The, uh, the professionalism, the intelligence, the dedication, the commitment to service of the people that are in the Coast Guard are really a second to none. And so 
we, we like to talk a lot about being multi-mission. So we'll take one of those ships and a good example, and this, this occurred uh, off of the Galapagos just, uh, just a couple of years ago. So the ship was uh, in the Eastern Pacific doing counter-narcotics efforts, trying, you know, stopping the cartels from moving cocaine at sea. Ship was fully engaged in that work when the government of Ecuador reached out and said that we need your help in countering the Chinese squid fleet, which mm -hmm. is encroaching in our uh, EEZ off of the Galapagos. And so that ship was moved literally, you know, one day it's doing this work, the next day it is over uh, moving to, uh, you know, engage and, or just, you know, pr create presence with the squid fleet, Chinese squid fleet off of the Galapagos. That same crew, no different training, no need to change authorities or put other people on. It was ship crew uh, shifted uh, to another mission area. And, you know, when we talk about being multi-mission and multi-dimensional, that's the kind of thing that we're able uh, to do with our teams and crews. That's a very specific and finite example. And, I'm, I'll, you know, I'll provide some others as we, uh, we, we work through kind of just what, uh, what it is that the Coast Guard is doing, certainly as it pertains to, uh, to the Pacific. And so it's a final thought. Well, we are uh, actually Space Force, while newer, they are also smaller than we are, but we are one of the you know, smaller branches of the US military. I think the New York Police Department's you know, on par, or probably a little bit uh, bigger. Uh, many navies around the world are smaller than we are. And certainly as I engage with my Coast Guard and Navy peers, uh, many navies have remits that are much, uh, much more aligned with what we do as a Coast Guard. And uh, we really, uh, you know, take our role as a professional military maritime force, global force, uh, seriously and, and really seek opportunities for those engagements and partnerships and, uh, and capacity building. Can I ask you about, um, to, just to stick with the people for uh, a second, you know, we, we are um, probably fairly familiar, most of us, with the, the NCO core uh, within the other armed uh, services. Um, and I assume you have the same in, in the Coast Guard. And I'm wondering uh, if you can talk a little about them. They're, you know, they are the backbone, uh, clearly, of the military. Without our phenomenal NCO core, we really just are not, are, are not the armed forces of, of any branch uh, that, that we're used to. Um, how long, uh, how many of them do you have? So what's your breakdown between officers and NCO? What is the average tenure. So how long are people in the Coast Guard? Do they, they pop in and out for two years or how many make it a career? Obviously you did 38 years, um, but how many of them stay with you for a long time? So awesome question. We uh, we could not do what we do without the non-commissioned officer uh, corps. We're about, I would say we're 85% uh, you know, enlisted, non-commissioned uh, officer, 15% officers, uh, rough breakdown on how the uh, service uh, fits that. We, the workforce period, while we're much smaller than the US Navy, that workforce pyramid I think is probably comparable to uh, the Navy. Uh, you know, we, we, we run similar uh, leadership uh, structures between the, between the two uh, organizations. Uh, we have a senior enlisted uh, core, you know, senior chiefs, master chiefs. Again, I'd put them up, they're second to none. I'd put them up against uh, literally uh, any, uh, any other leaders around the world. They, uh, just a professional core. We have a, uh, you know, a senior, what we call the yeah. master chief petty officer of the Coast Guard. So senior 
enlisted. I was just about to ask that. So you, yeah, do, you so do have a mix. We do have that. Uh, I was responsible. I mean, I, I hired him and he is in my office every day, multiple times a day, uh, you know, speaking truth to power. He's a great sensor for me, lets me know what's on the minds of the enlisted workforce. And uh, really, I could not do my job without him and the other, uh, just other key, key members of the enlisted force. I had the opportunity, well, so first let me, um, you asked about how long do they stay? Once people find us, this is the hard part, is illuminating who we are and what we offer as an organization. A lot of people don't know who we are and what the opportunity is. Once people find us, they stay. Wow. I do not have a retention issue. Really? Uh, so we, uh, well, we can talk about some of the recruiting challenges that all employers are currently facing. The military is not exception. Yeah. Once I've drawn somebody into the Coast Guard, they stay. Uh, and we'll stay for 20, and in many cases beyond. Obviously, I've stayed well, well beyond uh, that. What I was going to share with you is I was at Cape May just uh, two weeks ago. Uh, this is our sole accession point for the enlisted force. It's the it is every enlisted member comes through the doors at Cape May. Eight weeks later, we graduate them and uh, send them out uh, out into the fleet and into the force. I there were about 85 young people there. Uh, many, about a third of them fresh out of high school, several, the rest all had some kind of mm. college and life experience, but to a person, they knew why they were there. They knew what they were wanted. They were motivated. They, uh, they, there was no wavering on what have I just done to myself and what am I doing? Nothing but enthusiasm for the, for the service. And there, they were in week two of training, the hardest time that anyone faces they enter the service and they were all in and enthusiastic i i i wasn't that put together at 18 19 i was like boy if this is i'm i'm nothing but optimistic for the future when i see the caliber of people that we are drawing into the service could could they all swim <laughs> yeah so yeah it is kind of important to know how to swim we are we, yeah we do we're a water force right uh, so we do offer remedial swimming if you're a non-swimmer, but uh, yeah, swimming is kind of, kind yeah. of, we do wear life jackets so that, you know, there's a little aid if you fall. And the idea is don't fall in the water. Like that's a bad day if you've fallen in. Except, but, uh, except when the, the rescue divers jump yeah, into the water. The rescue swimmers. Amazing. So the rescue swimmers are really an incredible breed and, um, it, all you got to do is go on YouTube and type in Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer and you'll see the phenomenal work that they'll do, you know, for your, your listeners that may be familiar with like the work we did in Katrina, uh, some of the, you know, hurricane that affected Houston, the rooftop rescues, those are rescue swimmers who learned after Katrina that you need axes and chainsaws to cut into roofs. That's, uh, it, it highlights the best of who we are as an organization, the best of who the swimmers are, but also what a learning organization we are. That didn't take a lot of study. That was just like, hey, we need to do better at this. And these are tools that we need. And those swimmers, like I said, if you're, you know, you're in trouble 200 miles off the East Coast on a sailboat that's, uh, you know, sinking and in trouble, we'll come out with a helicopter and those guys will jump in the water and they'll come get you and get you back to safety in a helicopter. I personally couldn't do it, but the guys that do it have nothing but the utmost respect for it. They're just an incredible. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, this this um, may not be the most germane part of our conversation, but I do have to say, I was talking with my son, and you know, and I've you know had the, the the privilege of just you know being able to to work with a lot of different folks and a lot of the different branches, talking about a lot of different things, and and interview other uh, chiefs and and uh, 
commanders and uh, I was interviewing the the head of special operations command a few years ago. I got to say, you know, and everybody in the military really does an incredible job. But in in all honesty, there is nothing more extraordinary in our entire armed forces than your rescue divers to go out in regardless of what that weather is in the worst storms in the middle of pitch darkness, jump into a raging sea and pull someone out is is literally inconceivable to most of us. And I just wish people, I, I know everyone respects it, but I just wish we all really just understood it better. It's an incredible thing. Yeah, it, it is. It is pretty, uh, pretty incredible. And uh, said, I'm just, um, I'm, I'm proud of the force across, you know, every one of the mission sets. And hey, I don't know how old your son is, but you know, I'm hiring. <laughs> we could, uh, I can put him in touch with people if he's interested. <laughs> I will tell him, believe me. Um, so actually, so talking ab about that, maybe we can talk a little bit about the mission sets or at least the way that you present them to the public. Um, and I think they probably are most easily, mo most readily presented and probably most easily understood uh, understood or understandable as three. Uh, there's safety, um, there's security, and there's protection. Uh, and that means protection of of, of the, the maritime resources. Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about those to us. Again, um, the safety maybe is what we we just talked about and and uh, with with jumping in the water, but um, there's there's ecological and environmental protection, which is really crucial when we come to the Indo-Pacific and we'll eventually get there, folks, listeners. Um, there is, of course, the um, the the protection of 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 the homeland and and our coasts. Uh, and then there's working uh, with these partners around the world. So maybe you can talk a little bit about those mission sets. And then at that point, maybe we'll switch into talking about the Indo-Pacific and, and more specifically what you do there. No, so let me, uh, you know, we, we were obviously just talking about safety. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that and our role, um, you know, particularly here in the homeland. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about protection, environmental protection, living marine resources. Then I'll uh, segue to security, and I'll and I'll make that segue then and focus in uh, how our work in security, and particularly uh, further afield in places like the Indo-Pacific, uh, provide great return on investment uh, to our our national security, homeland security uh, prosperity uh, here in the here in the United States. And so, you know, the safety role is the one that's probably understood the best by most Americans. I and mean, we've talked a little bit about search and rescue. Uh, aids to navigation, icebreaking work, keeping uh, commerce uh, flowing. That's all in the safety remit. The ship inspections that I did as a young marine inspector, that's primarily in the safety. Uh, Can realm. I ask on that, by the way, ma'am, just very mm -hmm. quickly, how many ships do you uh, do you inspect per year? I mean, because we, you know, without, as you said, without the ships coming into the ports, yep. I live near Baltimore, you know, port of Baltimore, and we've gone and seen it. And even though it's not the biggest, it's pretty big. Yeah. Um, how many ships do you um, do you inspect? Yeah, pretty? and so it it really depends, sort of uh, port to port. Uh, LALB is the largest container port. Don't know what their numbers are offhand. I was the captain of the port of New York. You know, on the yeah. east coast, probably the largest on New. I think we, on average, would have. Annually, it was about 25,000 ship transits a year. We didn't wow. inspect every one of those. It was, there was about 1,800 to 2,000 discrete ships that would come and go. So we'll make multiple calls. Container ships are on a sort of liner run. They'll come in, they'll offload, they'll make another stop, another stop. They'll go overseas, pick stuff up and, and make a round like that. Then there's the domestic fleet of vessels, things like Staten Island Ferry, 
um, you know, small passenger vessels that if you're a tourist in an area, like in the Inner Harbor in Baltimore, you want to go take a little sunset cruise, those, uh, you know, that, that fleet of vessels is a couple of thousand, you know, based here in the U.S. And we uh, typically once a year, maybe a little more frequently, will do inspections on, on those as well. But there's obviously active monitoring and engagement with uh, the uh, community that oversees those, those vessels. And so we may not have an inspector on every day. Uh, you're engaged in some of the broader uh, mechanisms that keep uh, keep that system moving and um, and safe, and so that that's kind of a general overview of our uh, safety uh, safety room. And should I guess you know let me just touch on because it doesn't it falls a little bit in the safety bucket, maybe a little bit in the security bucket. We are I'm you know and I mentioned the the aftermath of the hurricanes in New Orleans and Houston, so we're also an emergency response organization. We are. Um, you know, after a natural disaster and, you know, hurricanes have been sort of the most um, ubiquitous, uh, we are the organization that comes in, in the immediate aftermath. In fact, you know, well, in many cases, well, gale force winds, well, you know, the winds and the weather is still bad and we fly those helicopters in and we begin searching for people who may be uh, in danger and in need using those swimmers. Uh, and others to ensure that uh, there's no unnecessary loss of life and begin to start the reconstitution process in an area. As the rest of the response community begins to kind of, you know, mobilize, it takes them a little more time, but we're the ones that are the first, uh, first sort of back into the breach providing that uh, for the public. Um, you know, from a protection standpoint, we obviously, you know, if there's a large oil spill, the Coast Guard is uh, in the, you know, the, the maritime environment, we're the lead federal agency for that. We obviously work closely with EPA and states, depending on where those uh, spills are, but ensuring that our waterways remain clean and pristine. Uh, we work with NOAA and National Marine Fisheries Service to protect and enforce our own uh, fishery stocks and fish stocks. And there's, you know, a lot of um, energy and collaboration that goes uh, into that between, uh, between the organizations. So let me talk fish. I'm going to talk fish specific to the, uh, to the Pacific, and then I'm going to segue a little bit to, uh, to security. So, uh, you know, IUU fishing, illegal, unregulated, unreported fishing. The Coast Guard published a strategy on IUU fishing it's been about a year and a half, two years ago. Uh, it was jointly rolled out with the Southcom commander and my, my predecessor and highlights that uh, this kind of activity, this is a global problem. Uh, some areas and regions, it's, it's you know, uh, more of a problem than others, but there's almost a, no region in the world who's not experiencing some level of IUU uh, fishing. And so, you know, creating uh, multilateral, bilateral opportunities to shore up against this illegal activity. At its most basic, the IUU activity is theft of a nation's natural resources and threatens a nation's national sovereignty, right? You get, I don't care which nation who's been sort of in, incurred upon and which nation is doing it. It's, it's basically, it's theft of natural resources and erosion of national sovereignty. And that is not consistent with the rule of law and governance that we enjoy uh, as nations. It's not consistent with the free and open Indo-PACOM. So, you know, now I'm going to start kind of pivoting into the into the Pacific, but when I'm this, these statements apply wherever you've got um, this kind of uh, illegal uh, activity uh, going on. And so, 
we've been working with regionally fishery RFMOs, regional fisheries management organizations to help build multilateral commitment and alignment around uh, this problem set. We've done a lot bilaterally. So starting with many of our South and Central American uh, neighbors, we began you know, back 20 years ago uh, with bilateral agreements focused on the counter-narcotics effort that we do. Some of those are broad enough that they also include uh, countering IEU fishing, and we're in the process of reviewing and updating those so that they do also include uh, fishing. For example, we recently, we have a bilateral fish spreader agreement with Fiji. So we recently had a large Coast Guard cutter about a year ago uh, in, in near Fiji, and we took a Fijian ship rider on board. So member of the uh, Fijian Coast Guard who had authority to enforce Fijian law as it pertains to fisheries. They came onto the Coast Guard ship and we then went out with that ship rider and engaged, you know, contacted uh, the fleet off of Fiji fishing and the Fijian fish rider was able to conduct boardings and enforce uh, Fijian law on those uh, ships. And so, uh, you know, we continue to negotiate and look for those kinds of bilateral opportunities because it brings capability, capacity, our ship with authority and expertise, the Fijian ship rider together in a way that creates presence uh, in effect in a region in particular, you know, across the Indo-Pacific, right? It's just, there's a, it's a huge body of water. The time distance is a challenge for everyone. And so, uh, creating those avenues for um, collaboration, sharing of capabilities, layering of authorities becomes uh, really, uh, really important and critical. So that's a bilateral example. Uh, you know, we believe as you look, there are there are multilateral opportunities as well to to you know bolster that kind of kind of network of capacity and capability and authority in a way that helps counter some of the uh, illegal activity uh, in the region. And so, uh, you know, just kind of one more thing on partnership and we'll probably uh, come, come back to this, right? Building sort of the, a coalition of the willing, if you will, but bringing um, multilaterally, multilaterally nations together with shared interests. And I've focused on illegal fishing, but it can be counter narcotics. It can be illegal migration and, you know, pick, the kind of illegal activities that go on in the seams that may have, that may be present between nation states as they, uh, you know, exert either with capacity or insufficient capacity to exert their own sovereignty and presence in their own, particularly uh, EEZs is really the name of the game. I believe it's a competitive advantage for, uh, you know, is to have allies and partners and in work to strengthen those engagements and partnerships. It's just, just good for business. It's good for security. It's good for business. And it, um, it, it brings, it sort of, we, we also like to talk, you know, maritime service. So I'll use a maritime analogy here, right? A rising tide floats all boats. And this is in that realm, right? Together, we all uh, come forward, uh, you know, stronger, you know, the, the um, some of the parts is greater than the, you know, than the, the individual pieces left, left alone. So, um, I mean, we could talk if you wanted. I didn't know if you wanted to go on and, and talk about some of the uh, more the protection or, or the environmental. I know we did a little bit of that. 
I really would like to get to the Indo-Pacific because I think yeah. a lot of what you do can can also be, you know, expressed through talking about that. Um, look, you know, when we talk about the Indo-Pacific, obviously, we often think of the Navy and we think about the aircraft carriers, we think about our forward-based, uh, you know, forces with with Indo-PACOM and, and the like. Um, but what you've just been talking about, and I think your Fijian example really got to it, in fact, I would think, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, please, the majority of our partners out there that you deal with, and again, I think this is probably global, but you know, for now we can focus on the Indo-Pacific, the things that you do are much closer to what they care about every day, right? They, you know, they're not, first of all, they're not, they don't have aircraft carriers. They don't have carrier strike groups. They're not flying off of aircraft carriers. Um, they're not thinking about the types of missions that much of the U.S. military does, but they do think about protecting coasts, protecting fisheries, protecting their, uh, you know, their people in need. You do that. Um, in a way, are you, do you feel, or is it fair to say that that in some ways it seems that the Coast Guard is is really the tip of the spear out in the Indo-Pacific? You're actually dealing with our partners in things that they need done Tuesday, not 2049, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, that it absolutely makes sense. And so one of the things you know, I've just been talking about, you know, partnership and engagement, multilateralism, you know, certainly in the context of fishing, let me just sort of uh, step back from, uh, from that. One of the things that the US Coast Guard is particularly good at is we will come to you as you are. You mm -hmm. are a small uh, island nation in the Pacific and uh, you have a patrol boat that you are, and maybe a small boat that you're working to operate with your uh, Coast Guard forces, and you're struggling to uh, maintain the engines on that patrol boat or that small boat. We will send a small team of two or three people who are experts in engine repair and maintenance and teach you and help you build your capacity to maintain your own equipment. Uh, you know you need to enforce your own uh, fisheries or do boardings to find counter-narcotics, but you don't have the expertise to do that, we'll send a team to do that for you as well. And so, uh, you know, while I've, I've, we've talked about cutters and uh, in addition to that uh, cutter creating presence and opportunity and engagement opportunity, we send small training teams all over the Pacific, you know, when asked for by nations to help build capacity, expertise, uh, capability, understanding. It can be as, um, uh, you know, it can be helping with a model maritime code so that your uh, laws and authorities are strengthened in a way that, that allows you not just to do the boarding, but creates, uh, you know, judicial uh, process and punitive process so that when someone's found to have con uh, been doing something illegal, you've got a full uh, prosecutorial process uh, to, to that activity so that it's not just, hey, we found you doing this, this was wrong, don't do it again, but you, you've got some, um, some, some teeth to it. And, you know, your point, right, many, sometimes we're engaging with Coast Guards, uh, sometimes we're engaging with navies. I mean, it really depends on what the um, who the nation is and what they need. And then I, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't also talk. I'm, you know, I'm talking now in the 
kind of partnership and capacity gilling, but there are a number of peer Coast Guards and navies in the region that um, could not um, could not be better uh, partners to us. Japan Coast Guard, uh, the Malaysian Navy and the Malaysian Coast Guard, uh, Bakamla, the Indonesian Coast Guard. I mean, I know I'm, these, these just come immediately to mind, uh, but there are many many nations in the region investing in their Coast Guards and in their navies in the sense that they are also engaged in. Uh, Coast Guard-like activities to enforce their own national sovereignty. And so, uh, you know, we may find ourselves one day helping with small engine repair, and on the next day, we're, we're engaged with, you know, doing a, um, a search and rescue exercise with the Japanese Coast Guard, who's very, very much a peer and capable uh, Coast Guard. And then, you know, that all that comes, uh, comes in, in between that. So the, um, it's interesting because, you know, you your point about the uh, uh, what you just mentioned, a small island nation, and you had mentioned Fiji, you know, recently, uh, there's been a lot of talk in Washington about us needing to compete better and be better present in the islands, uh, in the Pacific Islands, in, in you know, Micronesia and, and uh, Oceania and the like, that the Chinese have been encroaching on those areas. Um, you know, they've been making development deals and the like. And, and uh, Secretary of, uh, I think it was Secretary of Defense Austin went out uh, last year. I'm already forgetting because it's last year, but we have, we have had high level visits. And uh, I think Chairman Milley went out. Um, and all of that's great because it shows, you know, that we care and we're focused. Have you gone on those? Because in some ways, it seems to me that when we talk about being present in with the islands and that we want to make sure that that remains open territory and it's not, they don't feel pressured. Again, the Coast Guard is, is going to be there every day as much as possible and smaller fleet, but every day. Is, have you gone out? Of, is that is that a fair assessment of, 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 of the role you should be playing in that area? Yeah. So the... The value proposition of the U.S. Coast Guard and all of what we've been talking about, uh, as it pertains to the, you know, so the the challenge in uh, in the Indo-Pacific, is uh, widely understood, valued, and uh, frankly, the 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 business case uh, has been like I don't have to go into a meeting and say, hey, this is really important. Here's how the Coast Guard can help you. Uh, that, that level of recognition and understanding has already occurred. And so the conversation then becomes around uh, what, uh, what opportunity might they be there uh, with regard to investment in the United States Coast Guard that allows more persistent engagement uh, in these in these mission spaces, and so you know, if you look at the White House Indo-Pacific strategy, right, the Coast Guard, the U.S. Coast Guard, is a key key component in that Indo Indo-Pacific uh, strategy. It calls for uh, you know presence, enhanced maritime security through training and building partner capacity. Exactly the kinds of things that uh, we've uh, just been been talking about. Uh, you know, we are looking for opportunities to expand, increase our presence in the region. You know, the cutter patrols I talked about, uh, it can also be deployable specialized forces. So think law enforcement detachment, mm -hmm. a team of law enforcement professionals uh, that we can send in and again, and engage with another nation and provide expertise and, and bring these authorities and capacity together. We've been talking about the, the mobile, uh, you know, mobile, mobile training teams. And uh, we are in the process uh, now, we have identified the cutter and it's, it were, it's the Indo-Pacific support cutter. And so this will be 
uh, one of our 270 foot cutters that will be refocused into uh, into the region beginning uh, here towards the end of this year with that training capacity and sort of uh, collaboration and team, you know, a training platform that will increase, uh, doesn't, you know, get completely at the persistence issue, but will increase our ability uh, for some presence and, and engagement. And it's a, um, this support cutter concept is something that we've used uh, in the Caribbean back, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. So it's a, it's a, a proven, uh, method for us. And so we're excited about, uh, you know, kind of working through, there's obviously some logistics details. We're excited about working through that and getting, uh, uh, getting that cutter and crew uh, over into, into theater uh, here before the, before the calendar year is out and in starting to, you know, do some more uh, focused engagements, you know, what, where it's, where it's going to tie up when we're not doing that home point, all that we're still working. Uh, we're still working details on that. So do you, I don't know if you have exact numbers, but I am wondering about the the amount of engagement that you do in the Indo-Pacific uh, each year, meaning, you know, how many exercises do you do or how many port visits? You know, often we talk to the Navy, we say, you know, how many port visits do you do in the Air Force? How many times right. you fly in to an airfield? How much does the Coast Guard do? And, and I would assume given uh, the type of missions that you do in the ships that you have, you can actually maybe reach more places than, than, than the Navy, just because you've got smaller ships and you can go to small places yeah. that can take smaller ships. So how, how much is it a hundred, 250? I mean, you're just wondering. Yeah. So I, you know, that's a great question. I don't have a number of that. It's not a hundred. It's a, uh, it's not zero. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's probably, you know, port calls throughout the region. When you count the fast, we've got fast response cutters in Guam. So, you know, we got to get fuel and resupply, I don't know, somewhere in the 20 to 50 range mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but then, uh, you know, the, the different uh, operations, you know, whether it's North Pacific Guard and North Pacific Coast Guard Forum, uh, Kuru mm -hmm. Kuru, uh, some of the work Seamly does, Rimpact, right? We're engaged in all of that. And so, uh, you know, the answer is yes, we are making port calls and doing those engagements. Your observation is exactly correct, though. We gain access uh, to two locations, both because the ships are a little bit smaller, but more importantly, the red rising stripe on our white ships uh, means something, right? They, they talk about, uh, you know, a value proposition of, you know, good, good governance and, uh, you know, maritime stewardship and, partnership and capacity building, you know, a value uh, that many uh, nations uh, in, embrace and, uh, you know, in a, in a humanitarian and a capacity way that, um, you know, I, I love our Navy counterparts and they're really good at what they do, but they're, those, <clears throat> those ships have a, have a different uh, signal as they, uh, you know, as they operate around the world. So, so these have all been easy questions. Let me, let me ask you a harder question. Let me, let, let, you're not a contentious one, but a, but a slightly harder one, which is um, from your vantage point. And again, I, I do want to emphasize that I think it's a unique vantage point, given what the Coast Guard does. Are we losing water space in the Pacific? Uh, and I mean, not, of course, territorial, but I mean, by influence, I mean, presence, we're obviously trying to do more. And, and you've just talked about the Coast Guard doing more, the support cutter will be going out there. But we are also at the tail end, let's say, of a 20 year period or so where the other services have talked a great 
to a great degree about losing space to the Chinese. Um, the you know, Pacific Fleet talks about it. Pacific Air Forces talks about it. How does the Coast Guard view it? Um, again, because you're really dealing with some of the daily stuff. Is it harder now? Is it is it um, is it something where you say, you know, look, we we have we've we've sort of receded and we've got to get back into that game? Or do you feel things have always been going pretty well from your end? When I look sort of across the problem set uh, in the Indo-Pacific, uh, and this is you know not just the the Coast Guard's uh, role in it, um, I we. We were probably later to recognizing uh, the the effort and the challenge than uh, we should have been. It's sort of a collective we, right? Uh, having said that, <clears throat> the 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 conversations that are going on now, at, you know, across different levels of government, across you know, multilaterally, internationally, the the engagement. Of with partners and allies and the level of conversation, has, I've never seen anything like it, and it leaves me really optimistic about uh, the future and the and the way ahead. Our strength as in Western nations, allies, partners, and as you look throughout the Pacific, is in that partnership and allyship, and uh, we should not uh, we and we we need to continue to lean into that and engage. And so while we may have been uh, you know, sort of slower out of the gates than we we might otherwise has been. There's there is uh, there's much to be <clears throat> be optimistic about with regard to the Coast Guard, and we you know we are a Pacific nation. The United States is a Pacific nation. Uh, the Coast Guard has been in the Pacific for as long as we've been a Coast Guard. Our Medal of Honor winner Douglas Monroe died evacuating Marines off of Guadalcanal. Yeah, amazing story. So this is not you know the United States Coast Guard also has battle streamers from every war the United States has fought, right? We are we're very much a part of the integrated force. Uh, you know, and then the DOD guys talk about campaigning. The Coast Guard has been campaigning in the Indo-Pacific for as long as there's been a Coast Guard. I don't talk about it. I didn't use the term campaigning, but that's what we've been doing, uh, doing all, um, all along. And so uh, I see opportunity that leaves me very, uh, you know, just optimistic about future of the Coast Guard, and that much of that opportunity is as I look into the into the Indo-Pacific, and as I hear, you know, the the White House Indo-Pacific strategy, acknowledging and recognizing the Coast Guard's unique uh, role to that, and um, you know, I think we, I don't think we do have a unique role to play. Now, ensuring that it's that it's you know resourced and in a way that creates you know, the right persistence doesn't overextend us. That's, you know, that that's all uh, detailed decision discussion that, uh, you know, needs uh, needs some, some fleshing out. But um, the value proposition on an organization like the United States Coast Guard and the kinds of engagements that we are doing now and can continue to do in the future, uh, that business case and value proposition is pretty clear. It's not a difficult one to make. Now we just need to, uh, find uh, you know trade space and opportunity to, uh, to to step into it perhaps in a uh, you know more you know in a more persistent way than uh, than where we are right now and if I have the the figure correct correct you do all of this on just about 12 billion dollars a year that would be pretty accurate yes we are just slightly more than a 12 billion dollar a year organization that is it's uh, pretty remarkable it is remarkable do you I mean is there 
is there a metric you can use to uh, to calculate return on dollar, meaning what yeah. the Coast Guard does around the world. And we should know, we've talked a little bit about the Indo-Pacific here. Coast Guard is present everywhere in the world. Again, we don't, I think a lot of folks don't realize that. They don't know that you are working with nations in every sea, uh, in every ocean, um, obviously all of our coasts and our waterways and the like. Um, and that's 12 billion a year. That sounds like probably the best deal in government today. So how do you calculate yeah. your ergs out of each dollar? It's <laughs> got to be, you got to outstrip everyone. Yeah, I, that's yeah, it's a tough, tough number to come up with. But I, yeah, we, the, the return on investment that the American public gets from the United States Coast Guard is pretty remarkable. And oh, by the way, for that, you know, 12 and change billion dollars, we're in the midst of our largest uh, major ship recapitalization project that we've had since World War II. Uh, so we're, you know, brand new national security cutters, frigate-like ships on budget for three polar security cutters. The offshore patrol cutters will start uh, rolling, uh, you know, uh, being launched and rolling soon. Uh, single fleet of tailfold blightfold 60s, right? It's, uh, we're fielding brand new state-of-the-art pieces of steel that we're uh, then operating on behalf of the nation to ensure our national security and economic prosperity. And that return on investment is, uh, it's, it is, uh, it's pretty, it is pretty remarkable. Uh, I, you know, I look times at, at enviously at times at the size of the DOD budget and, you know, like a little, little of that rounding, uh, rounding error dust, <laughs> that wish it would come in my direction, but uh, I'm thankful for the support that we do have. And we're, uh, you know, we are absolutely committed to, uh, uh, to doing what the American public expects and needs us to do as a, uh, you know, as the United States Coast Guard. So I know we're almost out of time, but I, I mentioned it at the beginning and I, and I want to follow up with it at the end. You are the recipient of the first ever gold ancient trident, which honestly has to sound like whatever it is, one of the coolest things out there. What is the gold ancient trident? So I actually have a very large brass trident in my office. Oh man, I wish we could have a picture of that. Yeah, and um, so I'm the longest serving uh, marine safety uh, professional in in the service. And it, you know, at this point, if you if you count um, my uh, you know my academy time, it uh, I've you know I've been over over forty years in in uniform. I haven't been a marine inspector uh, that long, but um, the uh, you know, so it, it's it's a reckoning. We have this tradition of the ancients. We have an ancient mariner, the longest serving cutterman. I happen to be uh, the longest serving marine safety professional, and um, I really don't like the term ancient, but apparently <laughs> this, this goes. I like seasoned. I, I'm going to go with see, experience, experience, seasoned. mature. Yeah, mature. My millennial kids are just like, hey, mom, get over it. You know, <laughs> this, this is what it is. So. That is that is wonderful. Well, I wish we, you know, I wish we could keep keep going and talking and um, you know and talk a little bit more about the Indo-Pacific. But I did think it was really important to try to give the the, the overview or, or or ask you to give us the overview, which you did um, so wonderfully. You know, it's it's certainly not fair to say that the Coast Guard is uh, you know the overlooked service, but it, it is one that I think more attention should be drawn to. I, I know. Uh, again, having lived out in the region, traveling in the region, once you're there, you really do, of course, you know, we got gigantic bases and again, the the aircraft carriers and the like, but 
day to day, it is the Coast Guard uh, out there. And as you said, that that red racing stripe against the White Hall is probably more of a symbol of America to many of these nations than all the other wonderful uh, efforts that we do out there. And so I really appreciate your taking time to, to come on, on behalf of everyone who serves in the Coast Guard, but tell us a little bit about the service and, and talk a little bit about this region that we think is so important. Um, so Admiral Linda Fagan, the 27th Commandant of the United States Coast Guard, speaking from uh, Washington. Thank you so much for joining us on the Pacific Century. Thank you. And for all of you listening, thank you for uh, taking time. Uh, I hope you will go online and take a look at uh, the Coast Guard's webpage, take a look at uh, the strategy that they've put out, and and just understand everything that they, that they do do around the world. Uh, so uh, this has been Michael Oslin for the Pacific Century. We look forward to having you join us again next time. Bye-bye. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.